Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. We know authors cannot travel everywhere, so we want to bring them to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to our latest Book Reporter Talks To, where we've got a guest I think you're very familiar with, Fiona Davis, and we're going to be talking about her latest book. In our Book Reporter review, Rebecca Monroe said this, written with a dash of mystery, a hearty helping of absolutely perfect historical fiction, and a premise so alluring that it feels like it should require a ticket. And I agree. Spectacular is yet another thrilling, meticulously crafted work from an author who never shies away from an unforgettable finale. Whoa. I think that really sums it up. I love your reviewers. They really, (laughs) they really are. are, I love it. That's wonderful. It's like really from the heart. Yeah. Fiona, let me give you the the idea of where this interview came, because I have interviewed Fiona before. And the other night she joined my book club for an event. And we just had a meeting and we said, oh, let's invite Fiona. And I said, oh, yeah, we could do that. We set this huge setup my husband did in our living room. And the interview was so good that I said, well, we should have taped that. And I said, hey, Fiona, you available later this week. Why don't we just have a conversation? Because this is the time of year to really be talking about the spectacular. And we're going to go into why. So with that intro, welcome, Fiona. It's so nice to see you twice in one week. Yes, look at us. I love it. I love it. Let's keep it going. Let's keep going. (laughs) You know, I purposely held off on reading this book that came out in June. And you know, I usually try to read your books when they come out, because I knew that there was a Christmas show theme in this and Radio City. And I said, let me hold out so that I'm in the mood, in the zone of what the holidays really are. Now, have you heard this from other readers? Have you heard people saying I held back? I'm reading a Fiona Davis book. <laughs> I have not heard people say that, but I've heard a lot of people say um, that they, they've they heard about it just recently and got very excited because they were going to see the Rockettes or that people who read it and then said, oh, we're definitely going to see the Rockettes this year. And so it's been it's been really fun. It You know, most book releases, you kind of everything comes out and then it slowly trails off. And this one just has had a really fun bump over the past two months. I've been busier than ever. <laughs> Well, I think they should be selling it in the back of Radio City here, like on your way out. Forget buying that souvenir. Come over and get the book instead. You know. Mm-hmm. So what drew you, let's start at the beginning, to write about Radio City, because you usually have a kernel of an idea that sparks, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So this came actually through a, a reader email through my author website. And this woman wrote to me, she said, my name's Sandy. I'm in my mid eighties. I'm a former Rockette. And I'd love to tell you all about Radio City Music Hall, including all the backstage secrets. And so, of course, for me, I thought that's that's a gift. And so I called her. We had this great conversation. She had these incredible memories of that time. She was 19 when she danced there in the late 50s. Um, She married her, her. She met her husband there. He was 19 and running the lighting board. It was just incredible. We had this great conversation. And from there, I thought, even though I'm terrified to write about dance because I am not a dancer, <laughs> I had to do it. I, I knew I just had to, you know, I just had to bite the bullet and do it. And you had to learn about dance. I mean, you have yes. to learn about dance to be writing about this. And you write so accurately that I feel like I'm at the rehearsal sessions. I feel like I'm there. And they're very interesting things that happen that I'll let people discover in the book. But what it was is like, you know, how the line actually looks and things that actually work. And we brought this out when we were at the book in our book group the other night is you have those little tiny details that if you go to see the show, you're going to be, whoa, never thought about that. You know, even like, we'll just say the length of their skirts or the mm-hmm. length of their the tops of their hats. It all has to be in a line and work. And I found that fascinating. 
And, and that really came through interviewing women who had danced on that stage in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so all of these amazing women who talked about their time there and, and would share those little snippets and that exactly right. Like as, an, as a historical fiction author, you're looking for these small details that really anchor the reader in the story and in the time period. So, you know, things like one Rocket told me that one of the conductors on the last show of the night, because they did four shows a day, the last show of the night, he'd speed up so he could catch his train home. And so they'd have to dance faster and faster and faster. And just learning things like, you know, back then in the 50s, which is when the book is set, they did four shows a day for three or four weeks straight before they got a week off, which is very different because back then it was a film palace from right. what it is today, which is a concert hall, where if you're a raquette, you just work from November to January. And so right. it's a part-time job. It's just, it was a completely different, you know, they lived there pretty much year round to the point that there was a 26 bed dormitory in Radio City for when they had to stay over late at night because they had a 5 a.m. call, you know, wow. just incredible. Wow. So, okay, so they're there and then the show plays. Okay, so what the movie would play in between, like they would do their show, the movie, and then them again, and then the movie. And that's how it went. Yeah. So if you bought a ticket to the movie, you had a, you could stay for the stage show. And the stage show included not only the raquettes, there was the ballet corps, there was a choral ensemble. And the, and the, the dancers, their, what their number was, was around the theme of the movie. So if it was a John Wayne movie, they do a cowboy number with cowboy hats and, and fake little holsters. And, and, and so they had to learn something new all the time. They had to constantly be learning. And I have to say, you know, after hearing about their schedule and, and what they did, those dancers needed so much discipline and technique and flexibility. I mean, they were at the top of their game, these, these women. And on top of that, you know, back then you were supposed to be a nurse or a teacher. And here they were dancing and independent financially and, and you know, living in the heart of the city. And I remember asking one Rockette, what's your favorite memory? And she said, it was walking down the middle of Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night, arm in arm with my fellow Rockettes and just singing at the top of our lungs. Oh, I love and just, it. <laughs> right? That sense of like freedom and independence. And that's what I wanted to get into the book. Yeah. And it was because it was when you really think about what people were doing that during that time. I mean, at the beginning, your character is supposed to get married. She's 19. She's supposed to marry Nathaniel. This is what she's supposed to do. And father's outraged of what she's doing. And I think that more and more, one more than one Rockette would have told you their parents were outraged at what they were doing. They were just not absolutely happy at true. All. Yep. Absolutely true. They did not approve. It was just not, not what was done. Yeah, it was not it was not conforming to any of the norms of what was going on. Now, what is the show like now? Do they just do well, there's no movie? There's just do like the, the stage show. Yeah. So the Christmas Spectacular is about an hour long and they do between two and five shows a day. Wow. Um, and so it, it is still really intense. And you again, you have to be in such top form, but it is a part time job. So they start um, around Thanksgiving and they end a little this year. I think they end January 4th. Right. And And so they you know, you're constantly busy, but. Once that's over, you have to go off and find another job. Well, it is interesting too, because the other day I heard they were adding a couple of shows and I was like, that sounds really interesting. And they're going, there's a two o'clock here because everything else is sold out. So this is what we've done. And it's really interesting in a time like this where, okay, we've got a lot of online entertainment. We've got a lot of streaming. We've got a lot of pop culture all over the place that this has endured, that going mm -hmm. to see the Christmas show is still something that sells out and that people are anchored to doing. And it, you know, doesn't have the stars that we know on stage. 
Does that make that is such a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. You know, and, and what it is, is a number of the numbers have been, they've been doing them since the 1930s when it first started, like the, the toy soldiers number is original, the, the Christmas, you know, the, the, when everybody comes together at the end with the, the sheep and the camel that's been going on since the beginning. And for so many people, it's a childhood memory that they just revere. Yes. And so they want to pass it on to their child. And in my reader, you know, on, on Facebook and on Instagram, so many readers share what happened when they went and how they went with their aunt or their mother. Yeah. So it's just this wonderful gift that keeps on giving, even though in today's show, you have, you know, 3D effects at one point, there's drones at one point. <laughs> and so they've modernized it, but, but the inherent spirit of it is still just really about celebration and, and the power of dance and, and, and the, the love of New York city. Yeah. And that's what it really is. It's like, because it's, it's like the, the New York show in our book group, they all have some younger children and they're like, do you think it's worth it to spend the money on the ticket to take him this year? And they go, he doesn't sit still now. He can't go. Like you have to earn the right to be able to go sit through the radio city show. And I still remember little kids were always squirming. They were always squirming yeah. around the chair. And they're all dressed so, up in their velvet dresses and their bows. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's a time where people don't dress up anymore. It's a mm -hmm. time where people just don't do these things anymore. And it's uh, become kind of tradition. So how many times did you go see the show when you were researching? Did you go a lot? You know, I went once because COVID was going on and off then. And so, and, and that's why I think there's so many shows right now because we're finally back in it. Even last year, there were, they had to cancel shows because, you know, they were so careful about who was allowed backstage and, and still even, you know, the cast would come, would get sick. And, mm -hmm. and so I only saw it once, um, but there's a lot of fun things online you can find. And, you know, like you were talking about the illusions, like when they do that kick line, you know, it looks like they're all holding on to each other, but in fact, there's a good four or five inches of space in between the back of the girl and the hand of the okay. girl and her. And yeah. so when you're watching it with that, you can see it, but it really is such a wonderful optical illusion. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you can find things online of them um, practicing, rehearsing the toy soldiers number where they fall back into each other. Yeah. And just, But watching that live is just incredible. The audience, the tension just builds and builds and builds. It's beautifully done. You know, it, it's beautifully done. And the, the attention to detail is just as strong today as it was back in the 30s. Yeah. And so even though you've got the drones and the 3D, there's certain elements that are still classic. They're absolutely yeah. classic. So you brought some you know, like being special because it's part of being a very elite crowd and these people still keep in touch. They still figure out what's going on. It's very interesting to see what happens with one of the women that she was a rockette with later on, where she has a very normal life, which is not what you thought what she would end up doing. And I found that that was a big part of it as well is you caught up the nostalgia, the way you open the book in the early nineties and then look back at 56, but we didn't have the dual times, the timelines that you typically have in your books. And instead it was this one person, but looking back at what was going on. Did you know that's the way you're going to handle it right from the beginning? Or did you play with two people? I did. You know, I, I, I know, I know I'm known for these dual timelines, but sometimes it's really nice to just take a step back and, and do something a little more refreshing, a little different. Mm -hmm. And so with this, yeah, it's this woman in her fifties, who's looking back at her time when she was a young girl. And, and I love that idea of, of looking back and, and being able to see this innocent kid who's, you know, starry eyed and compare it to the woman who's been through the mill and yeah. really, you know, learned a lot and, and ended up in a, a place where she didn't expect to be. 
And then of course, having it all come together at the end, which is, that's the fun part. I love writing that ending scene when everything comes together. Do you know the ending scene at the beginning? I do tend to. You yeah. I think about the ending scene and the, and whatever plot twist I want. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I think that when you're thinking about this, I know that you said there's a group from Boston, there's a big group of your fans and they come down and what do they come down? Tell us a little bit about that trip that they did to come down and see, meet with you and then go, did you go to the show with them? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. They're called club red and red stands for read, eat, drink. And they're amazing. <laughs> they're, they're led by this amazing woman named Christine and she, they, they go to, they go to um, Ireland, they go to London, they travel. And so from my very first book, when I, you know, had just written a book, I had no idea how the publishing world worked. They said, oh, we're, there's a bunch of us. We're going to come down on a bus and we want to tour all the locations in the dollhouse. And I thought, well, of course, great. And every book they've come back. And this year it was 60 of them. Wow. And we had a happy hour on the Friday night. And then we went to a show on Saturday. We did the behind the scenes tour right after, and then went all out to a barbecue lunch. It was, it's just incredible. And they're so supportive and you know they've been there since the very beginning and we've toured the public library we've toured um you know we've gone to see the asylum that was part of the the uh, the address out on roosevelt island it's just I, been such a treat and i'm really lucky to know them they're fantastic i feel like i should interview them for reading group guides because any group that's that been around that long doing the same kinds of things and to do all these kinds of trips i'm definitely gonna have to reach out about that yeah, you should talk to Christina. It's she's she's their their fearless leader and she's incredible. She's an amazing woman. And it's the kind of thing where you don't have to go to everything, but if you decide this is the kind of thing, but I know they're big fans of yours because I've seen pictures of them coming down on the bus ready to greet you. I think it's like it's one of the most fun things. Uh, so I have to know. So you're over there. Did you can you come come home and to try to do a high kick in the mirror? Like <laughs> try to do it. Because I'd be flat on my butt. Yeah. Oh, oh, I would be. No, you know, I, I love watching it. And I loved interviewing dancers. Mm -hmm. That was incredible learning, you know, about what it's like, because dancers are able to express verbally what goes on in their bodies physically. And I think it's because when they learn the choreography, it's a mixture of movement and and voice. And so they're able to kind of tell me things in the most beautiful way where I'd be interviewing someone and typing up their words and think that's going into the book exactly as is. Like, I don't have to change that. That is such a beautiful way to describe what it's like to be on stage. Yeah. And so I was really lucky in that way. It's like, you know, count two, three, four. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to, I just find it fascinating. Now you spend a lot of time in theater and you spend a lot of time, you know, on stage like that. And dance is so different, but did you see correlations at the same time of the camaraderie or is it different for dancers than it was for um, other theater folk? You know, the, the dancers, especially the Rockettes were a really strong sisterhood mm -hmm. in a huge way. And when you're doing a show, say on Broadway or off Broadway or in regional theater, you come together, you do the show for however long it lasts and then you disband and you're like, oh, we'll keep in touch. And you, you, everyone's off doing, you know, the next thing they do. But with the Rockettes, it really, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even today, forms this sisterhood because, you know, you're, once you're a Rockette, you're always a Rockette. Right. And, right. and the alumni network is very strong. And so in that way, it was different. And I'd say stronger than, than if you're a stage actor. You know, it's really funny. When I started out my career as a Condé Nast working at Mademoiselle Magazine, and we have 
a very core group of people that still like, I think it was also the times besides the fact that they're dancers. And I think there were certain times that drew people together. This was like the late seventies. And all of a sudden people were, you knew the people still like my best friend is somebody that I met like the first day I started working and we still talk to each other and we still keep up and, you know, have stories and things like that. And I don't know if work life and, or, any kind of life is quite the same. So when you've got something like the Rockettes, it is a very special moment because I think that right now there's not that same longevity of things. I think that people are hopping jobs more and I'm just going to equate this to the rest of life. It's they're, they're hopping jobs more. They're um, here, there, the other place, they touch on it. Everybody's always wondering if they're going to lose their job, if they will be, a, a, and we, it was kind of like this gay old time that everybody was just doing their thing. And it's sort of like if you're a Rockette, yes, you come back and try out again the next year, but you know the pattern, you know what's going on. And I think that's one of the things that drives people to have such a joy about it is it's an expected in a time where nothing is expected, like, you know, what's going on right now. Yes. Yeah. And and you're you're upholding a legacy mm-hmm. in so many ways. So it's it's an important job. Yeah. yeah it's just really. like these moments, you know. So let's talk about the Big Apple Bomber, because Okay, we can't just have the story of kicking and being in line and everybody being friendly with each other. How did you come across this story? Because I had no idea about this and no one I was talking to says, what are you talking about? And maybe it's because the news wasn't the same then. Now it would have been on every night, you know? (laughs) Oh, sure. So yeah, so as I was researching kind of what happened in the 50s to find something outside of Radio City to include in the novel, I learned that in late 56, the police were really ramping up their hunt for what was known as the Mad Bomber. And he was this guy who set bombs. He set 33 bombs in um, all over Manhattan in iconic New York City buildings like the Public Library, Grand Central, Penn Station. And he set two at Radio City Music Hall. And I just thought that's amazing. I'd never heard of him. He injured 15 people, some seriously. And he did this for 16 years and no one could find him. And what amazed me was that they finally found him by using criminal profiling for the very first time, where this psychiatrist at, in Elmhurst, Queens, he was given all the letters and the notes that the bomber had left over the years, and he studied them, and he went back to the police, and he said, okay, your guy's going to be 40 to 50, not married, living with an older female relative, Roman Catholic, from Eastern Europe, he'll live outside of the city, and he said, when you find him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit, and it will be buttoned. And without giving anything away, the science of criminal profiling was born. And I just thought that's in, you know, that's amazing. And my my boyfriend writes thrillers and mysteries. And so part of me thought, you know, again, you know, this is my seventh book. And so I thought, let's play, you yeah. know, let's do something unexpected. So let's put this little thriller aspect and we call it the big apple bomber because we had to kind of change some things. Although I made very clear in the author's note, what's real and what's not. And sometimes what's real is more shocking than what's in the book. Exactly. Um, And so I thought, you know, that that's going to be fun. Let's see what we can do with this. And so in the book, 19 year old Marion becomes a rocket. And then for very personal reasons, she gets very caught up in the hunt for the big apple bomber. Mm -hmm. And that brings her together with a psychiatrist who's very introverted, but brilliant. And they have to try and solve this mystery. So it's just a fun ride, I think. 
It's a completely fun ride. And then you're saying they're going, whoa, this really happened in New York. And you think about now, I have this joke that like right now they put on the news at night. There's this very blurry picture of somebody. And they go, this is the guy that jumped the turnstile and ran into the subway car. And the mm -hmm. next night they go, we found the guy and he's like going to jail and he got, he's had like 11 other offenses. And you're sitting there like from that very blurry picture. So now because you're writing historical fiction, it's much easier to go tell these stories because if not, it'd be wrapped up in 24, 48 hours by some fuzzy video. So you're yes. very lucky these are the times you're working in. And also the pioneering of this technology, of this science actually, of what we're going to do to try to find people. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And the guy went on to, you know, advise police officers and the FBI all about how he'd done it and what he did. But it's true. You know, that's why I like setting books in like 1990s and earlier, mm -hmm. because there's no cell phones, mm -mm. because exactly. they solve too many problems too quickly. And you need those misconnections and that to, to ramp up the tension in a book. I remember seeing a pay phone in the subway at 53rd Street, and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, does this thing still work? And how much would it cost to make a call? Probably like $3 at this point. <laughs> but you remember all those times where even on the back of the credit card, it had the number that if you needed to use a toll call, this is what the number that you use, and it got charged to your credit card. So you have to even watch those times of ways to get yourself out of situations. Yeah. So yeah. But you know, there are um, there are a lot of reveals in the book that I don't really want to share. I want people to be able to give it away. Um, but there was traced to something corporate. And I like that there was some kind of um, something else to be watching, like what happened and why did this guy do it? And then the reveals about her own family mm -hmm. and her father and her mother and what went on. And I just found that the book was a real page turner. And I will say that everybody in the book, they keeps going, I don't have time to read the book. And I said, I'm telling you guys, this is going to be a fast read. And it was because everybody's going, oh my gosh, I just couldn't put it down. And my one, uh, one of the women in my group, I loved it. She said, I got to work and I was still listening and I didn't want to stop. And that was a real moment of, okay, I really am involved in this story. So yeah. you know, kudos to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Is this is the first time you've written a book that's a thriller as well as historical fiction. I mean, you've mentioned that Greg, who the book is dedicated to, is a thriller writer. What was this like for you though? Because you have to have some pacing going on with that. You need the highs, the lows, this, the that. Different? Yeah, yeah, it was different. Um, yeah, because, you know, you needed them to have a tough journey to find this guy. Um, you know, you had to lay out the clues and then have them make mistakes and have to circle back. And so that was a whole different way to think of things, because I think in, in other in my other books, it's a little more linear. And here you had to kind of go on this this crazy journey. And then, of course, to have a chase scene through Radio City Music Hall was really fun where I was calling um, I was calling Sandy's husband because he he knows all the technical stuff. And I'm like, okay, where would someone hide in the ground floor below the stage? Like, where could someone hide? And he's like, oh, I have the best place. And he did. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> it's like all these little details of where I like, you know, hid people. And this is where I did this. But it's also like that pacing moment where you've got to have tension start and stop. And you've got to like, you know, roll. And then you've got to have that big crescendo to get you out. But then when that part of the story ends, you pick up because there's still other parts of the stories to play with. And I, I think that it, the fact that it was brisk in all the different parts, it was that your craft has come along so well. And I think that so many people, you know, the craft stays the same, but here I was saying, this is not the first book you wrote. Like you would just tell that there's a measure to the success. Do you feel that way too? Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, with every book and with every book I read, I'm learning something from another author of, oh, that's how they did that. 
And so it's really fun to incorporate it. And now I have a little more time in between books. I get a year and a half instead of a year. Yeah. And that's enough because there's so much traveling right now anyway, that it gives me time to let the story settle and not feel mm-hmm. like oh, I have to get through this. I have to rush and get it you know, out for the deadline. Here, I can take my time now and kind of layer more interesting things in and, and play with a little. And I, I really feel like that's helped a lot. I also feel like sometimes walking away and walking in the park or yeah. getting on a train or a plane or something, you can think more freely than sitting at your desk. I don't oh, care if you're laundry. I don't care what you're watering the plants. Sometimes just you have to get your head out of what you've got to do and say, wait a second, I think I can make that better or I can make that sharper, which I didn't see before because I was oh, yeah. task, 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 you know? Absolutely. In fact, you know, I can sit there and just stew over something that a plot point, it's not working out. How am I going to do it? And the minute I get up and go for a run, it comes right to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that so many people right now are just sitting there saying um, that book a year is really tough. The book a year for promoting is really tough. Some people need two years, I think. And I think the quality of the writing would be that much better. And I don't think that readers would forget the writer. And I think that there's this feeling that you have to do this and you're really on a runway all the time. You're constantly taking off with the plane and it's no time to land and walk around. It's true. And, and yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And I think it was helpful early on because you're building up a backlist quickly. And then when someone, you know, when you're on your fourth or fifth book and someone that's their first book they've ever read, they have so much to go back to and play with. And that's, what's wonderful about these books is they're all standalone. And so the sales of the backlist are still really strong because people know if they've liked one, they'll probably like this one. Yes. And it's, they're all different time periods, you know, different people, different stories, but you you kind of know what you're going to get. It's a it's a history about a New York City building and and who lived and worked there. Yeah, and it also says it's um, a Fiona Davis book. We've gotten to the point where you're a brand, and I think that that's really interesting as well because it's a Fiona Davis brand. You know what you're going to get, and you know oh, you really want to learn about the Frick. You really want to learn about this. These are the books that you would go to. And you can pick out anyone in any order. It doesn't really matter. It's just a subject that might be of interest to you. So do you sell well internationally? I'm I'm really curious because you have so many, you know, so many people come to New York to see like the sites. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. I, I, the, the translations are incredible. And it's so much fun to look at the covers that they come up with because they're completely different from what we imagine here. And in fact, I was just um, able to meet the translator for the Romanian edition of all my books. And she was so sweet because she came here and she came to go to the library and, and to the Frick. And because, you know, she, she was just so excited and she brought me a copy of the Magnolia Palace the translated version with this beautiful cover. So yeah, it, it's amazing to think that they're all over the world. Do you feature all the covers on your website? Do you feature the international covers? I don't, because it can get a little confusing, but I do post, I'll be doing a post in January. Um, there's okay. a great new French cover that's coming out for one of the books. And I think I, sometimes it's fun to do just a group of them because the readers love it. Let's see it because you see them and you see how the interpretation is completely different all over the world and how sometimes they rename the book and sometimes they do this. It's just really, you know, fascinating. Do your previous books make it any easier for you to get in to do research because you've got this battery of books? It's not like when you walk in with the address, hi, can I get into the Barbizon? This is really what I like to write about, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's changed so much. And and now it's, it's really just a joy because I can usually like at the next book, I reached out to the communications department and you know, they were so welcoming and, and you're just meeting all these new people and making these great connections. 
And, you know, the book at, that said at the New York Public Library, they have me come in every month, every two months and sign hundreds of copies. Wow. And, and they go through them so fast, which is amazing because they have them right out front in the gift shop. And, you know, it's a book about the library and the library's right. history. So it's just a beautiful partnership that I, I would never expect. You know, no. I would never ask for that or expect that. And the fact that they are so, so, you know, generous is just beyond. Has anybody pitched the um, Radio City on having the book available when people leave? You know, the Radio City is owned by a corporation. And so right. the board to, of a board or a board of trustees, it's 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 very different. You know, it's profit. And so they have their own thing going. So I, I you know, we don't want to overstep and they do their thing. We do ours. But, you know, it's wonderful how many people have said to me, I'm going to see the Rockettes because of your book. And, and I just love that. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's like an evening news. Have you done anything with the local news? Have anybody done a piece on this yet? No, not with the local news. No, that's a good idea. I think, think about like NBC Nightly News or somebody doing, oh, publicist, go. That is, because right now, I mean, when they were on the other night and they were talking about the extra shows added, Mm -hmm. I think to do something like this, oh, we got to talk. We got to figure this out because there's definitely, you know, this book that, you know, ties in and things like that. Blah, blah, blah. Come on, folks. You know what I mean? Like Your these. mind. You've got a marketing mind, man. I love it. I know, but I'm just sitting there going, you know, they're always starving for like real New York moments and there's New York now and all these kinds of things. And given the battery of books that you've done, I feel like it's, you know, an open door kind of thing. I just have to think about what show. We'll, we'll, we'll just handle this. I don't know any producers any place. I'll be honest with you. I just know, I just know the kind of stories that are sometimes featured on nightly news and the things that you know people are pulling out, like you know, at the end of the day. We actually, think- say, yeah, we just did this wonderful event with um the Broadway um Broadway Dance Center, and they 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 had uh, about forty or. 40 or 50 young dancers who came and they took a, a, a radio city dance type class called um, fusion. And, and so they came and learned a precision dance Ooh. number right. with a woman who was a former Rockette who is a dance teacher now. And 60 of her students have gone on to become Rockettes. Her name is Rhonda Melkin and she's incredible. And so she taught a class and then I watched with an, uh, one of my sources who's in her eighties, who's a former Rockette who'd come for it. And then at the end, we all sat and answered questions. And then we did a book signing. There's a great reel on Instagram um, yeah. that you can see of that they put together of the, the class and the, the signing and just the, the joy of these dancers and talking to them. It was so inspiring. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Like just moments like that are so much fun. Of, and you know, when you think about it, if you watch the Taylor Swift movie, if you watch uh, Beyonce's movie. What is it? It's precision dance. I mean, what yes. are all those people doing? And where did that really originate with the Rockettes? Mm-hmm. And if you really go back, that's where it is. Because where was Elspeth's precision dancing going on? Okay, drum drum corps, things like that, marching bands. But mm-hmm. when you really sit and watch on these shows and you watch the choreography and you're realizing you got to get from this stage to this stage to this, what is it? It's the same thing that was really of walking in a line of doing this on a bigger platform. And all the costume changes, same thing. Yeah, very similar. Same thing, same thing. And you know, I went to see the Taylor Swift movie because I knew this much about Taylor Swift. Like, let me see if I fit my fingers tighter together. And I went, and I went by myself because there was no, none of the guys in my family were going. And <laughs> I really walked away with an appreciation, like you say, of the commitment to what you're doing. On, 
Granite's a different level, but it's really all starting out with that same kind of, we all have to march together because if anybody didn't, she's walking out of her shoe or she's doing this, we're not going to come down the right way. Same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And you also have this, two of your characters have Parkinson's disease in the book and you were diagnosed in 2020. And what you really didn't put this in the story line because I found it completely compelling. Yet my, the, the um, book club who hadn't read far enough for the one line and the author's note completely like, they were like, what are you talking about? So- yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was diagnosed in 2020. Um, and my symptoms are really, it's really early stages. They're very minor right now and really well controlled by medication. Um, but of course, you know, I jumped into the research the minute I was diagnosed to find out more, more about it. And I just learned that a lot of people don't talk about it when they have it because they, you know, it's considered a disease of being old and, or they don't want to lose their jobs. And so I just thought, you know, I'm in a position where I can talk about it. And I think the more people talk about it, the more money for research. And of course, Michael J. Fox is just amazing at leading the charge and his foundation has been incredible. Um, and so, you know, as I'm working about this book about a dancer, I you you create the character and you think, okay, what obstacles can I put in her way? And I thought, well, what's the worst thing can happen to a dancer? And that's you lose control of your movements. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that's kind of, that might work. And so it's sprinkled very lightly and it's not the main part of the story at all, but I just wanted to be able to explore it in, in the writing and, you know, be able to say, yes, I have it. And, you know, in, in the book, it's a different time period. So it's yes. a very different outcome. Keep that yes. in mind. You know, these days it's different. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I was, kind of excited to do it and excited to just come out so that if I'm at a, doing an author talk and my arm is shaking, you know, people know why that I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm not shaking because of this, this is that or the other reason, you know, it's like, and you know, I felt that like, you know, in doing it, it became a very normal thing, the way you were explaining it in the book. And I love that at the moment where she gets up and she wants to walk towards the stage and like, how am I going to get there? And these two girls are right there to walk her up to the stage. And it was just this moment of, we know what's going on. We'll take you there. And then she gets the statue that she has no idea what to do with. Like, do I check it a co-check? Like, what do I do with this thing that I've won? But yeah, yeah. And, and you know, to me, that was the culmination to showing the support of, of that group and, and the way that they take care of each other. And, and just, you know, the way that even when you're at your worst moment, you can be lifted up by others. That's exactly. And it was exactly that moment that was going out to there. So, okay. Was this always the title? Was it always the spectacular? You know, I don't, I I'm so bad at naming my books. I tend to leave it. I just call it, it was the radio city project for, as I was working on it. Okay. And then once my editor and agent have kind of read it, we brainstorm. And I, I think my, my, I think my editor this time came up with a spectacular and the minute okay. she said it, I thought, Oh, that's perfect. Cause it applies to the, the lead, the woman, Marion, and it also applies to the building and to the dance number. You know, it's just everything. It just encapsulated everything in the book. And even bombing, the spectacular bombings that go <laughs> off all over the city. It was like every single thing. I think this is one of the most stunning covers. It's got the Radio City, but even the way that your name is done, the spectacular is done, every single thing, it feels period, but feels right. You know, I yeah, just- Yeah, the art department at Dutton are incredible. They're so talented. And every book has been, again, they're all different. But right. when you see them all together, you get the sense, okay, this is a group. This is, this is, these are Fiona Davis books. And they're so good at that. Well, the other thing too, is there's just a wee bit of praise on the back of this. 
Jamie Ford, Kate Quinn, Christine McMorris, Janelle Clayton, Amy Leary. I mean, there's great praise from your peers as well. And that's a huge thing right now because you didn't even know these people how many books ago, like seriously, and how you built a community and uh, uh you know around you and are you part of like was this thursday 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 group yeah, tell the, me about this because i've seen something and i'm like what's going on here yeah the thursday authors we came about during um covid where we would zoom every thursday with a glass of wine and some of us had books coming out some of us were writing books some of us were you know thinking about books and um and it's it's a bunch of us nicola harrison uh I'm going to forget names now because I'm I'm thinking yeah. about it. Jamie Brenner, Amy Popel, Linda Lloydman, yeah. um, Susie Weinstein is as a blogger, um, Su uh, Susie Ormond Schnall, and so we it's just a wonderful group. And so we have a text thread that we check in on with, and you know you can get together and say, okay, I'm not sure about this. What should I do? And you get this wonderful help and support. And that's what the entire writing community has been like. I mean. And to meet some of these people who I revere, like Kate Quinn, mm -hmm. and, you know, to meet her in person and then be able to Zoom with her, you know, run something by if I'm not sure how to handle this situation. And it, it really is wonderful, especially because, you know, we're all, most of us are in our 40s, 50s, 60s type thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've made your friends in high school and college and you think that's it. And suddenly there's this amazing new friend group of people who love books and love writing. So it's been a joy to be part of. I'm very lucky. Yeah, and it's fun because you can say, I'm not, I'm stuck on this and they'll understand. And a lot of times if you say you're stuck on something, if you say to an editor, they're in a little bit of a panic of, is she ever gonna get out of the stuck of it? But if you say it to other people, it's a form of failure. Whereas every writer knows you paint yourself into a corner. I mean, you- mm -hmm. I, I tossed 30,000 words. I tossed 50,000 words. And you hear those stories and then you go, wait a second. Okay, that's all right to do. You know, it's, you can walk away from something or move it in a different direction. And each book, it's a new set of challenges. So you're, const you're constantly learning and you're constantly butting your head. <laughs> and that's what nobody understands is the butting your head part. They think it's all to go on your road and talk about the book part. They have no idea. So- the audio has Rachel L. Jacobs and Kimberly Farr as narrators. Are they playing different parts? Like, how does it, do you know what they're one doing? One is older, Marion, and one does like guest. Young, the, so each different timeline. And they're amazing. They're, they're just incredible. I'm in awe of audiobook narrators because it's such an art. And, and so I've been really lucky to have some, some wonderful ones, including them, for sure. Well, do you know what? It's really fun because sometimes when I'm behind and I'm going to be interviewing an author, to be able to have be able to listen to the audio at the same time and then go back to the book and go back and forth. And I think audio has just gotten so much better. I just hope that AI does not ruin it. I'm just like, I'm a little worried about that. I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit worried because we've got such great narrators and the way that they're creating story and can they recreate voice because we've heard it done, you know? Right. But the, yeah, I'm all behind supporting the narrators all the way. They deserve yeah our support absolutely so speaking of audio know your next project is an audio original and you wrote it with that guy greg so like wait a second he not only gets a book dedicated to it but the two of you are now writing together like tell us more tell us more yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know it came about where um i had a minor foot operation last year and i knew i'd have downtime and we had a friend wendy walker who's an amazing um thriller mystery author mm -hmm. and she'd done a couple audio things and we thought it's just fantastic the way she does that and we started thinking, well, maybe we should try something. And we thought, what if we kind of combine our genres? So it's it's set in Prohibition era in New York City. Uh, it's from the point of view of a woman who's running a criminal empire from the Plaza Hotel. 
<laughs> and then her young female getaway driver, and then the detective who's trying to bring them down. And so it, it's kind of a triangle of who's double crossing who. And it's called the Gimlet Slip. The Gimlet and, Slip. <laughs> Gimlet Slip. And it'll be out in on March 5th in audiobook only. And then six months later, it'll be an ebook because it's okay. a novella. It's just a it's a short, short piece. But it was so much fun to do. When you're talking short, it's like a hundred pages if we were reading a book. Or yeah, I think that's, yeah, I'd say it came out to about 90, probably 90. And it's a nice way to build an audience out too, because it's like, it's like uh, you're in between Fiona. It's you're in between Fiona or discover Fiona. It's one or the other, one or the yes, other. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then on the book side of things, what's next? Which Where are we going in New York City? All right, the next book is set at the Met Museum. Ooh. which is a wonderful, wonderful place. And it's set partly in the Egyptian wing uh, and then partly from the point of view of an assistant to the Met Gala. Mm. So it's Glamour and Mummies. And uh, the main timeline is 1978 with okay. some jumps to the 1930s. So it's really, really fun. It, it's the Diana Vreeland yes. year of the Met Gala. And she was such, I mean, an icon. And the, the things she says are hilarious. She's amazing. So it's really fun to play with. And I'm, I'm just in the editing stage now. It'll be out in January of 2025. Those days of like, who knew who? Wait, so wait, it's, it's what, what's the, um, the earlier, the later timeline is what years? The... Um, it's 1978 and then the 1930s. And the 1930s part is in Egypt where I traveled in April so I could do some research, which was really incredible. It was a great trip. Yeah. That's about, about the time I started in magazines and it was just a very different era. I mean, we had an editor chief that we'd be like moving around trying on different outfits in the closet. And you hear she had these chains around her neck and she clinked down the hallway. And years later, I saw her in LA and I told her, you used to clink down the hallway and we would like, you know, cut out like, no, she's never going to like that outfit. Take that off. Ah. You know? And it was really, really funny to see, you know, like what she had, but they were, it was a different point of view. When I first started working, there were three people and they were talking about Willie, um, Perry and Ralph. And I thought there were their husbands. I had no idea. They were talking about Ralph Lauren, Perry Ellis, and Willie Smith. No clue of what was going on. But they'd be talking about these people all the time, like they were going home to Perry. <laughs> and I was like this kid from New Jersey, like clueless. But it's like the way they moved through life was just so interesting. And it, it's not like that anymore. It's just the, the, the yeah. everything has just changed. And, you know, it used to be we had models. Now we have celebrity. Celebrity mm -hmm. is taking over the whole country. You know, it's all yeah. celebrity. Yeah. And I love that Deanna Vreeland, you know, she discovered Angelica Houston and Cher and Lauren Hutton. She found these models who were really interesting looking. You know, they weren't the traditional beauty. Mm -mm. And she's the one who found them. It's just an incredible, the fashions, everything about it. It's really fun to write about. It was a really different time. It was really, and they went to Europe and it was like these extravaganzas, you know. I'll confess that one time I forgot to book them hotel rooms when I was working at the magazine. Two editors had to like share a room because of me, you know. No. So it's like you'll never forget that yeah was, you know I was just in big trouble huh? you know it's always so good to speak with you I can't wait to see the next book I can't wait to be reading this and be listening to the audio as well thank you so much for joining us oh no thank you I could talk to you all day this has been wonderful thank you so much so everyone the spectacular and then if you're in New York you've got to go see the Radio City Music Show again and if you don't do it this year you got to do next year okay thank you so much for joining us thank you and to everybody else, look forward to seeing you next time. Remember, we're on YouTube as the Book Report Network, and we're on podcast as Book Reporter Talks To, any place you can find us. Thanks so much, everybody.
Keep listening for an audio excerpt from The Spectacular by Fiona Davis, narrated by Rachel L. Jacobs and Kimberly Farr, coming up after the credits, courtesy of Penguin Audio. Thank you for listening to Book Reporter Talks To. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Support us by sharing on social media or by telling a friend about us. And we look forward to next time on Book Reporter Talks To. This show has been produced by Jordan Red Productions. And now, hear an audiobook excerpt from The Spectacular, narrated by Rachel L. Jacobs and Kimberly Farr, courtesy of Penguin Audio. I still dance in my dreams, but not in my life. In my life, I shuffle around this too large house, tossing whatever is within reach into the nearest cardboard box not bothering to wrap anything in newspaper or to make sure that the box labeled living room actually contains items from the living room. The movers are far more worried about my belongings than I am. As I've hit my 50s, I've found that the stuff that surrounds me every day has lost its charm. Like the clock on the fireplace mantle that I pick up, surprised at its heft, the darn thing hasn't worked in a decade. Or the cast-iron Le Creuset pot that sits in a drawer doing absolutely nothing. I haven't given a dinner party in ages, and I'm not about to start now. Some people end up hoarding their possessions, unable to get rid of the plastic bags that the groceries came in. But that's not me. To be honest, I'm getting a kick out of seeing box after box go out the door. Like a snake shedding its skin. Out the door and into the big truck to be dropped off at the Salvation Army. The few pieces that are left, including my antique bed and my favorite armchair, will be delivered to a sunny one-bedroom with high ceilings in Sutton Gardens, an independent living community for the 55 and over set where you can mind your own business in the comfort of your room or join in on a water aerobics class, depending on the day. You would think that after independent living comes dependent living, but instead it's assisted, which brings to mind someone delicately holding your elbow as you cross the street in the best of circumstances or offering extra leverage as you rise from the commode. In the worst, having been the assistant myself for many years, I know full well what's involved. Finally, there's the memory care floor, which is a laugh, because for most folks behind those locked doors, there aren't that many memories left to be careful about. That's not me, though. Not by a long shot. At 55, I still have all my memories intact, thank you very much. There are days when I wouldn't mind blocking out the more painful ones, but I have nothing to complain about. Not yet. I'm aware of my limitations, but I'm not defined by them. My new lodgings are just down the road from this house, so I'm not venturing very far even though Bronxville is only 18 miles from midtown Manhattan. It's an oasis of green, renowned for its stockbroker Tudor houses. 
the term coined after the newly rich, snapped them up in the 1920s and 30s. People like my father, who was looking for a home that was close to the city, but not too close. A place that showed he had good taste and a good job. My father never got tired of pointing out the slate roof and lead glass windows to visitors. He may not have been a stockbroker, but he was a company man and proud of it. I look about my living room, almost expecting to see him drinking a scotch in his favorite armchair, and my throat tightens. Let me help you with that. One of the movers, a skinny kid with freckles whom the others have teased all afternoon, puts the box he was carrying on the coffee table and comes toward me, eyes wide. He gently takes the clock from my hands. It doesn't work, I say, wiping the dust from my palms. You can have it if you like. Maybe it can be fixed. We're not allowed to take anything, he says. But thanks. He looks like he's barely 16 and is more tentative in his actions than his cohorts, who move about the house like they own it. You're new at this, I say. It's my first day, 